0: Welcome, this is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, The Gospel of John, that you may believe, true greatness. The
1: original date of this message was the 4th of December, 2022.
0: Well, good morning. What a beautiful way to start our time off. Sing praises to the Lord, remembering all that Jesus did for us, huh? As I was walking up here, I was reminded, I believe it's Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said every time he ascended up to his pulpit, he would, he would say to himself, by your spirit, by your spirit, by your spirit, by your spirit, by your spirit. I think he had many stairs to climb. I only have so many. Man, I, I want the Lord to be honored, I, I want the Lord to be magnified, lifted high as we open up God's Word together this morning. The topic that we're going to be looking at this morning is true greatness. And if you're like me, you've been following the World Cup and so you've heard discussion, much discussion about, about the greatest team Perhaps the greatest player. I don't know for you if that's Ronaldo, Messi, Neymar. If you go back to Pele, what do you think of when I say greatness? Is that where your mind goes to? You you go to sports, athletes. Perhaps you're an NBA fan, and so then you go to. Is it Jordan? Is it Kobe? Is it LeBron? You could go to tennis, you got three
1: there too, Djokovic, Nadal, or is it Federer? How about the greatest man? Who would you consider that to be? That's ever walked the the face of the earth. No doubt we were
0: in church, so we'd all say Jesus, but, but how do you live? How do you really think? How about if I were to say, how about the greatest
1: man that was not God? Who would that be? And why was he so great? Turn with me to Matthew.
0: Chapter 11, verse 11. You can underline this in your Bible and you can remember this verse because it is such a good verse and is such a challenge. You see, when all is said and done and Messi or Neymar or... Djokovic, Federer, you fill in the blank of anybody that you think is is great when they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on, on judgment day. I'm not going to be asked how good of a soccer player, basketball, tennis player. You, you won't be asked. You'll be asked what did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? First, did you believe in Him? Did you trust in Him as your Savior? Bearing your sin, the guilt, the shame, the punishment, the wrath of God for you. Did you believe, trust in Him? Second, did you make much of Him? That's the challenge for us this morning. And as we get into this. Bodie Bauckham says this quite often. This would be one of those sermons that either you're going to say amen or you're going to say ouch. I've been saying a whole lot of ouch. (laughs) Ouch. Really? Ouch. Oh, man. Really, Lord? There's another area where I'm just so proud and full of pride. Oh, there's another one. And then on the other hand, it was praise you, Lord, for your goodness. But look at what Jesus has to say. Of all the men that have walked the face of this planet, that have gone before us, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he
1: I think at times we look at the life of Jesus and we say unattainable. That's impossible. We can't live
0: like that. And then you see what we're going to see this morning and you see that there are men that have gone before us. Godly ladies that have gone before us. and, And they are a picture of faithfulness. In John's case, they're a picture of someone who makes much of Christ. On Friday, we... We came here and we
1: enjoyed a time, a celebration of life for Greg Kruger. And as different
0: people, particularly his family, stood up and shared of the life of Greg
1: and the way that he lived, there was a common theme. That was gentleness, kindness, love. And I would like to share just a, a, a quick little memory that I have of him as well.
0: The Lord gave me opportunity to spend some time with, with Greg and Marty as, as his health continued to decline. To the, the point where he was no longer living, getting upstairs and, and living in their own bedroom. But hanging out on a, on a bed downstairs. And the last time I went and, and, and visited them... You, you could see he was in pain, but he just wanted to keep talking to me, and he wanted to keep pointing me to Jesus. I was there to encourage him, but instead he flipped it around on me. He's like, Jesus, 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 he's so good. He's such a good Savior. And then the other thing he kept doing was was reaching over to Marty, looking at his wife with these puppy dog eyes that just know that he loved her so much. After all these years of marriage, now staring deaf in. Death in the face. And he was content. He, he was in so much pain that at one point, after I'd been there for a while, he finally asked Marty, hey, can you get me a painkiller?
1: And he didn't complain. He was all about Jesus. Loving his family. And he
0: is an example of, I believe what we're going to see. This morning, in John Chapter 3, turn there with me if you're not there yet. This morning we're only going to get to verse 30, which is the, the last words penned by the Apostle John that John the Baptist has to say. Can you imagine this being the last thing written about you, quoting you, and the last thing that is written in Scripture is, he must decrease, but I... Or sorry, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's where we're going to land today. And where we're going to start off is, is equally encouraging and challenging as
1: we look at these disciples of John the Baptist come to him. And they're upset. After these things,
0: verse 22, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who was he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we stop and we confess one and all this
1: morning, Lord, that we don't always make as much of you as we should. We confess, Lord, to you that we, at times, are jealous of others. We are full of pride. Lord, use your word this morning as the sword that it is to
0: cut down deep into the very fibers of our soul, of who we are, that we might leave here with a better glimpse of your greatness and how we can be great in your kingdom by being humble and following and serving you and making much of you. Lord, particularly in this time of year where it is so easy to get caught up in the lights and the presence and so many good things but miss the best thing, may we not miss you, Lord, and use our time in this, mor- this morning as a, as a launch pad to allow us to better honor you, serve you, speak of you,
1: and make much of you during this time. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So it's interesting
0: that we go from this dialogue from Jesus Christ and Nicodemus to now this account of of John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't say anything here. It's not a dialogue with Jesus. We don't see any speech of, of Jesus being presented, and yet Jesus takes front stage. Jesus is the central figure. That is who they are talking about, and that is who we should be talking about. That is who we should be considering. That is who we should be thinking about. No matter if somebody comes and questions us, about the Lord Jesus like John the Baptist's disciples do. The first verses here, 22 to 26, they, they give us the setting. They give us the, the lead to this great discussion that happens. And what we see first is that Jesus and his disciples, they leave Jerusalem. Remember, that's where they were with Nicodemus. They were in the city. And isn't it interesting that that the interaction goes from someone who is a Pharisee and oh, so righteous as far as man's eyes go and earning his own righteousness to someone who is entirely different. Someone who gave up basically a normal life to point people to Jesus Christ, the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so Jesus and his disciples, they take off. And they go into the countryside. And they go into the countryside of what is called Judea. And Jesus begins baptizing. And while it's difficult to know exactly where these two locations were where Jesus was baptizing. And then where John the Baptist was baptizing. We we can pinpoint with somewhat accuracy that they were within a couple miles of each other. They're in the general same vicinity of each other. And they're both baptizing. And they're baptizing at the same time. And we see that Jesus was there, what, spending time. In the Greek, that doesn't mean he was just there for a day or even a week. It's months. This is a prolonged time of ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, and he's ministering. And really what he's doing is he's competing with John the Baptist. And this may not take you by surprise, but if all that you had was the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you you would take issue with this because this doesn't seem to fit into any of the other Gospel accounts. Do you know why? It's because of what John says of when this happened. Verse 24, He lets us know that when this happens, when these two are both baptizing at the same time and teaching and preaching, and no doubt that's what Jesus was doing, why else would he be baptizing unless he's preaching repentance? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That's what Jesus preaches. And we'll find out when we get to John chapter 4, verse 2, that it actually wasn't Jesus that was baptizing, it's his disciples. But there tends to be some confusion, and the liberal scholars, they come to this passage of Scripture and they say, oh, see, here, look, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible's full of errors. That's why we can't trust it. It's not reliable. yet what they miss in all of their studying and all of their pride is the clear simplicity of what God's Word teaches. It doesn't contradict itself. What we get in John's account is, is more light. John adds in a a new time and a new place where Jesus is ministering that the other gospel accounts don't. Turn with me to Mark. Mark Mark chapter 1. And here we see that instead of giving us the time sequence that talks about Jesus and John ministering together at the same time before John's imprisonment, we see it being described as a time when Jesus is doing his ministry when John is in custody. John is in prison. We could begin our time in in Mark at verse 9 as we see Jesus baptized by John in the Jordan. And then we could go on and we see, so so what happens next? The Spirit impels, prods Jesus, pulls Jesus to go what to? The wilderness and there in verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. So that happens first. And then look at verse 14. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee
1: preaching the gospel of God. So then what is it? Does Jesus only minister when John is in jail? Or is it as John
0: says in his gospel that Jesus actually preached simultaneously at the same time that John the Baptist discipled and baptized and preached? Well, it's not either this or that. It's both and. Both accounts are true. And what John is giving us is an added insight. Remember how John finished and and wraps up His entire gospel account. In John 21 verse 25, he says what? He says, are you kidding me? If everything that Jesus did was written, there would not be enough books in all of the world to contain it. Well, in the same way, everything that Jesus did was not written. What we have here is what the Lord wanted to be revealed. But there is lots of stuff that is not revealed. And John would know as he's penning his gospel that the other gospel accounts were already out in circulation. And so all of those that had read the other gospel or heard the other gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they would have this different time frame in their mind. They would think that Jesus' ministry really didn't begin until John the Baptist was in prison. And now what he's going to say is, no, this is a different time. Not only is this a different time before John was placed in prison, but this is a different place. You see, back in Mark, what we saw was that that was happening in Galilee. That's an entirely different place than Judea, which is where John is telling us this is happening. And so my whole point in all of this is that God's word is inerrant inspired and any apparent contradictions are just that they're apparent and it's because we haven't dug into the word to truly understand what is going on and what is being communicated these accounts and 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 varying accounts that saying that oh this happened when john was in prison and now this happens before john was in prison doesn't discredit god's word doesn't prove that god's word's unreliable There's a lot that happened in the life of Jesus that wasn't recorded for us. And now what John is doing is he's letting them on. Okay, so here's another section of the life of Jesus. And let me unfold this for you. And as we understand that, it even adds more significance to what is going on. Because they're ministering at the same time. And my first question for us all is, is, why were John's disciples still with him? Earlier in in the gospel of John, we saw John point to Jesus and say, hey, there's the Lamb of God. And then what happens? Two of his followers follow Jesus. And instead of stopping them, whoa, whoa, wait. No, you guys still need to spend time with me. John's like, good. So even as I considered everything that is being presented to us here, a question that kept coming back to me is, man, why are these guys still with John the Baptist? Because what we're going to find out is they know about Jesus. And they know what John said about Jesus because he reminds them, hey, I already told you this, and yet they don't follow him. You know why? Because they're just like us, and we can become so proud and arrogant that, that what we are doing is right, that we miss the truth. What we are going to see this morning is true greatness is found only in Jesus Christ. And as we desire to honor him and to be great as far as God's perspective goes, then we must be humble. Humility. That's what we're going to see on the part of John the Baptist this morning. And I like this definition by C.S. Lewis, who says, Humility is this, It's, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not warm theology that you just think of yourself as being nothing forever and that you just don't deserve anything. That is true, but it's not leaving it there. It's recognizing how good God has been to us in his grace. And instead of revolving everything around us, which is our natural tendency in our own pride, it's to make much of Christ. And I would like to add to that definition, not just not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less and thinking of Christ more. For that is what we are going to see this morning in the final verses as we continue to, to get in to this account. But notice how John's disciples come and approach him. So first, somebody who's unnamed, some, some Jew comes to them and has a question about purification. That's, we've seen that already in the Gospel of John, purification. It could be regarding food. It could be regarding a whole bunch of different things that somebody was made unclean. And no doubt, there's a picture of baptism in that. And so perhaps the question came to them, well, hey, whose baptism is more important? Your guy John's or this Jesus over here? Which one should I go to? Who should I go seek after? And then we see in 26 that they then take this question, they bring it to John the Baptist. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified,
1: behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to you. Notice what they say. First, they say that all are coming to him. Is that a true statement?
0: No, they're over-exaggerating. We'd already been told that there were still people going to John. So if all were going to Jesus, then no one would be coming to John. But when we're in the frame of mind where they're at, and we're seeped in petty jealousy and pride, man, our reasoning goes out the door. And that's where their reasoning was at. They didn't even understand truly how their hearts were functioning. And so what is John going to do? He's going to teach them and try to humble them and allow them to see what is of utmost significance.
1: And notice they don't even want to call Jesus, Jesus. Right? They say, he, he, that guy. We're not even going to say his
0: name because it ticks us off so much. Why? Because you're our man. What's he doing? And by the way, don't you remember? He got to start from you. Nobody knew about him until you baptized him. And, and what's the deal? Why is he jumping into your ministry? You're
1: the baptizer. It's even in your name. And so then they come to him. And they... Let us all know that he's been testifying about
0: the Lord Jesus. That that word, that verb in the Greek points to one time in the past that now has ongoing significance into the present where he was testifying at one particular time in the past of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, of the Messiah, Lord, coming, even pointing to him. He did that at one particular point in the past and he's continuing to
1: do it right now today. And the problem is they don't like it. And they want some clarity. They don't understand. And do you think perhaps you can relate to some extent? Think
0: about their perspective. It wasn't too much time before this where where John was very well known. And everybody was traveling out to visit John, to watch John, to listen to John, and really to look at John. Why? Because he dressed so weird, and he ate weird food. And so they came, and they, they came in masses. Kings came to him, and he, he had opportunities to talk to kings. This was a man who had a vibrant ministry. Very, very popular And so do you think that's difficult for those who are his followers that are his disciples? And do you think this was difficult for John?
1: That in his pride, he could have been tempted to side with them and defend himself and try to make himself look better. But instead, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he just points them to Jesus and how great Jesus is. Think about how you might have responded. Do you ever get to the place to where you feel threatened by the success of others? That's what's going
0: on here. But it's not just John. It's it's his disciples that are really the ones that are feeling threatened by the success of Jesus. You ever
1: had a Promotion that was up for you, but somebody else got it. You ever spend time with another family, and their fam- their kids—they are so
0: obedient, and they are so loving towards their parents. And they don't have to be asked to do this; and do- they just run over and do the dishes.
1: And you're like, hey, where's mine? Or somebody who is in a financial position where they're sitting pretty.
0: And they're so faithful with all of their finances. And what are you? You're wishing that you could have what they have. That,
1: a new house, a new car, a better job. Maybe you're single and you're wishing that you could be married. And so what are
0: you? You're... You're jealous of all these other folks
1: that are around you that that have what you don't. Turn with me to Philippians. You see, the the Apostle Paul had opportunities, potential at times to look at things the, the wrong way
0: to perhaps get on the wrong side of this, to defend himself,
1: to try to make others look bad or feel bad. But the Apostle Paul wouldn't do any of that.
0: As he writes the letter to the Philippians, remember, he's in jail. And this is what he has to say about the gospel going forth. You see, all that he cared about was Christ, just as... We're going to see with John the Baptist. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Verse 14, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So he's rejoicing in the boldness that so many have gained because he has been placed into prison for proclaiming the gospel. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, And in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. What was Paul all about? He wasn't about himself. He was all about the Lord Jesus Christ, even in prison, where guys are abusing him and trying to make his life much, much more worse. He's all, I don't care. Why? Because more people are coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. And that's all he was concerned about. That's what consumed him. What consumes you? What is it that's most important to you? Do you struggle with competing with others? Whether that's out in the open or whether that's just in your own mind. And what they have that you want, you want what they have. You, you know this, this comes to a pastor very easily. I invite someone to come into. to, to preach and then I hear later maybe not so much later <laughs> that was the best sermon ever and what do I start to think huh or, or how about a church
1: close by that that is thriving that is growing and growing and growing
0: what 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 is my response Oh, praise you, Jesus, that your word is going forth. And I'm talking about a church that is proclaiming his word, that is teaching his word accurately, truthfully, by the spirit of God. Do you think every time that my attitude is, oh, praise you, Jesus. You're building your church. That is so, so awesome. Thank you that I get to hear about this. Now, sometimes in my pride, I use that as an opportunity to become so self-centered and begin to think this is
1: again all about me instead of about him. The key to greatness isn't being highly
0: competitive or to be jealous over other success or in their positions or in even our own accomplishments, but in knowing Christ and making him known that he must become our everything. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, in verses 27 to 30, John the Baptist gives us four perspectives to learn about what kind of attitude we need to have as to what true greatness looks like. Four perspectives to learn from John the Baptist on what the attitude of true greatness looks like. Here they are. First, all I have is from him. That's what we're going to see in verse 27. All I have is from him. Second, in verse 28, not me but him. Not me but him. 29, it fills me with joy to point to him. It fills me with joy to point to him. And finally, verse 30, less of me, more of him. Less of me, more of him. Notice how John responds to their question. Hey, what's up with this other guy? He could have responded to this in so many different ways. But instead he responds in a humble way that you and I should respond. He lets them know that all that he has is from him. A man can receive nothing unless it has been been given him from heaven. All that we have is from God. This goes outside of whatever kind of ministry someone might hold in Christ's church. This goes to everything that we have. This even goes to the man that might be your boss. And the gifts that God has given, yes, him. And the blessing that God has bestowed upon him. This goes to other families that you see with their kids doing so well. And maybe their kids, and they never get sick. Who does that point to? Don't point that to them. Point that to our God and give him the praise and thanksgiving. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying everything that we have is a gift from God. You see, John recognizes that God is graciously and sovereign over all things. And so he trusts in God. And even as fewer and fewer people come to him, and even as his ministry is dying out, and he is
1: becoming less and less popular, his response isn't petty jealousy, as his disciples
0: are. His response isn't, man, okay, let's get together and let's tweak this thing. We're too close to where Jesus is. Let's move Let's move to a different river system. We'll go to a whole different place. Oh, and let's change the message. You're talking too much about Jesus. You need to talk about yourself more, John. Then it'll go well. He he doesn't have any kind of discussion like that at all. He says, no, everything that I have is from him. And the success that I had before is from him and because of him. And so now, if he wants to pull that down, that I'm fine with that. In fact, I'm more than fine. We're going to see, man, that fills me with joy that more and more people are going to Jesus. Why are you still here with me? Okay, I don't know for sure that
1: John said that. But it's certainly implied in this. It's much
0: like the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. To a church in Corinth who is having a terribly difficult time with disunity and disharmony. And pride creating all sorts of factions and division in the church. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? Who told you that this is all about you? Who
1: told you that all that you have is because of your own doing? Who told you that you were great? For who regards you as superior? What do you
0: have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Stop bragging about what you have as though it weren't a gift. That's what he says. That's what John the Baptist is saying. Anything that I have is from him. You guys are are, are missing the whole point here. And he's saying that to to his disciples, and the Lord's saying that to all of us this morning. All that we have, the ability we have right now to be a blessing to those around us, to give each other christmas gifts or to live in our nice homes and and decorate them all nice for christmas or all the other things that we do all the time when it comes to christmas that you just jump right on board with everybody else doing why well because your neighbors already got their lights up so you better get your lights up next and 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 all of this and before you know it you've you've stopped thinking about him
1: and what a blessing he has been to you and all that he has given you What I believe John the Baptist's disciples' problem was they made John the Baptist too important. He shouldn't have been that important to them. He kept pointing everyone else to Jesus Christ
0: and somehow they missed his pointing.
1: Let's make sure we don't do the same thing. That we miss Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this. We must all understand who the hero is of
0: Christ church. Who the hero is of Christmas. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. So first, all that I have is from him. and originates from him and all that you have is from him. And so then I can rejoice in what the Lord has given you instead of looking at it as a temptation for me to become jealous. I can rejoice over, man, God's been so good to them. Praise the Lord. He allowed them to come out of their sickness three weeks before me. That's a good God. And that he's still with me. And that I trust him. So all that I have is from him. Second, not me but him that's where he goes next he reminds them hey this shouldn't surprise you guys not only does everything that i have come from him and as a result of him but you guys know already that i've already told you this i'm not the christ but i've been sent been sent ahead of him
1: it's it's not about me it's about him there's only one savior and i'm not it Do you believe that it
0: actually can be a temptation for a pastor to think that he's the savior of his congregation? I'll answer the question for you, yes. And begin to think that if I can just do something right and somehow just get you all to love me more, then it'll go better. And instead of going to this person or that other person, no, whenever you have a problem, you come to me. And that in that way, I can, I can somehow manipulate and I can become what? I can become the Savior. That is so, so wrong. But do you know what? We can do the same thing in our own homes. We don't have to make this just about church. We can do that with our spouses. Instead of pointing them to Jesus, you take over. And you want to be so controlling. And you want to be the Holy Spirit. And so then what do you do? You guide all the conversations. They go, man, if they would just listen to me. And at times they don't need to listen to you. They need to hear from God.
1: So you point them to him. Christ must remain the end all and the absolute exalted one. Whether that's in our homes or that's in his church.
0: I don't know where I stumbled upon this, but I I didn't come up with it. It's It's a litmus test for true success and greatness for all pastors. You want to hear it? Here's the criteria. It's not how many people attend their church and follow their preaching, listen to their podcasts, read their books, and love them. That's not it. The true test of a pastor's calling is whether people follow Christ and love Christ more because of their pastor. May I add and love his word.
1: That's what John the Baptist is doing. That's what the Apostle Paul does in, in 1 Corinthians. In fact, turn there with me. 1
0: Corinthians chapter 3. We, we know that there's problems in the church in Corinth. Paul starts off in the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians and he says, hey, there's division among you guys. You guys got it all mixed up. Some of you are saying, oh, no, we're we're all about following Apollos. Wherever he goes, we go. Whatever he says, we believe. And others of you, no, you follow me, you follow Paul. Others, Cephas, Peter. Others say, oh, no, we're the most spiritual ones. We follow Jesus Christ and only him. And even in doing that, they were doing it in a divisive way. And so Paul reprimands them. And he puts everything into correct perspective. The same kind of perspective that John the Baptist had. And that's what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 5 to 11, what then is Apollos? And he says to himself, what is Paul? And all we are are servants, servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So by all means, we must be faithful. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. And he's cool with that. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. And then he says this in verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ, which is Jesus Christ. He says, when it all comes down to it's not about us, it's about him. So let's remember that, and let's humble ourselves, and let's be like John the Baptist, and let's be like the Apostle Paul, and let's be like Moses. Turn with me to Numbers. Such a challenging passage of Scripture here. Numbers chapter 11. Do you know what it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, about Moses? Moses. Listen to this, now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who is on the face of the earth. That's Moses' calling card, he was humble. And we see his humility on full display in
1: Numbers 11, verses 26 to 30. Let me start in verse 25, Moses needs
0: help, and so he asked for 70 guys that would help, and The Lord says, okay, I'm I'm actually going to do something strange here. I'm going to take the Holy Spirit that's in you, residing in you, right here, right now, and come upon them and then leave, that's working in your heart right now and helping you lead and be the man that you are. I'm going to take that Holy Spirit and I'm going to give him out also to these others. And that's what we see in 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the Spirit who was upon him, speaking of Moses, and placed him, the Holy Spirit, upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. It only happened this one time. To let Moses and everybody know, hey, it's not just Moses, that's the Lord doing this, but then look at what happens next. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So they were among these 70, and they had the, whole, the Holy Spirit came upon them too, and they prophesied, and then look at what happens. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying, are prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, he'd be like the disciples of John the Baptist, very loyal. The attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Stop them, Moses. They're making you look bad. They're acting like you, and everybody's going to think that you're not too special. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses wasn't concerned with anything but God's glory and serving him and not taking any credit for himself. Oh, to follow that kind of attitude and perspective and have that in our daily lives and the way that we live day in and day out. So all I have is from him. I'm not the savior, he is. And third, it fills me with joy to point to him. This is perhaps the most difficult to get when you first just look at this passage. But when you understand what was involved in a Jewish marriage, man, it makes so much sense that where John goes next in order to teach his disciples what humility and what true greatness is, he uses the example of a marriage. And he says this, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine mine has been made full. It has been brought to completion. It has been filled up all the way. My joy, that's what he's saying. So he uses this illustration. And he says, look, hey, I'm not the bride and I'm not the groom. And yet we could say of us that we are represented in the bride." And so in that, we can rejoice that, that we are the ones being brought to the groom, which is Christ. But John says, no, no, that's not the picture I'm trying to paint. I am the best man. And for us, that doesn't mean much, because all the best man does for, for our culture is, is do a little toast and then do, like, what, the bachelor party before? That, that's not what John's talking about. John is talking about a man that had a very important role. He would send out the invitations for the upcoming wedding. He'd MC the wedding feast, which was a huge responsibility. But then the most important thing that he did was protect the bride. As they had this special bridal chamber where they would meet for their first night together. After all the ceremony was done... And they had said and done their little dances and met with everybody. There was a time where the the groom would come and he'd get in the room and he'd wait for her. But impostors would try to come in and steal the bride. And the way that he could distinguish anybody else from the true groom was his voice. Why? Because this was his best friend. They knew each other. And so he'd be waiting outside that particular room, the door, keeping it protected making sure nobody else would come. Only the groom would come and go into that room. And then when the bride come, he would willingly let her go. Why? Because he's heard the voice and he knows that that the true groom is there. And then he'd he'd shut the door and then he'd rejoice. Why? Because it is done. They're going to spend their first night together and they are going to start the wonderful gift of marriage from here on out. You know what's even cooler? Some historians believe that there's actually more to this. That he could not under any circumstance marry the bride. Even if she called it off. Even if her family called it off. Even if the groom called it off. He could not under any circumstances marry her. What would this do? This would keep jealousy and animosity completely out of the mix. He's not trying to think of a way that he can somehow take her from him. His whole objective is for them to come together. And he's going to rejoice over them coming together and being husband and wife. And that, watching them come together as the bride and the groom finally make it together in that room, that is what fills him with joy. Nothing else. He recognizes that this whole wedding ceremony, it's not about him at all. It's all about this couple coming together. And in the same way, that's what John the Baptist is saying. He's saying, oh, don't you guys get it? I'm all about us going to Christ.
1: Last one to go. Okay, great. Everybody, let's go to Jesus. Because he's the Savior, I'm not. The question for us all this morning is this, then. What makes your joy complete?
0: What is it that you live for that you can't wait to happen and when that happens you're going to be like, "Yes, the cat's meow. I have arrived and it is going to be oh so glorious." Could it be your your retirement and finally getting out of California? Oh, you laugh, but how many people have gone?
1: And they get there and you know what happens? Life is still hard. How about this? Your
0: kids are all grown, and they're gone, and now you just get to be alone with your spouse. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying any of these things are evil. What I'm saying is if that's what you're living for, then that's wrong. You're missing out on the joy of the Lord and where true joy can come from, and the only time that we truly have joy is doing His will which is making the most of him in every situation that we can. So don't leave, but if you did leave, honor the Lord, go to a church that proclaims the word, is all about Jesus,
1: and tell all your new neighbors about him. But stay. Notice this too, is the Christian life boring? Man, that's what I thought. Before I was
0: saved? Oh, it's just, God's just going to withhold all these things that I know are going to make me happy. And you know what you find? He's our creator. He knows what truly will give us joy. And John understood this. But what we do at times is we belittle God's plan for us and all that He has. Okay, so all I have is from Him, verse 27 not me but him it's he's the savior not me it fills me with joy to point to him i can't wait to point more and more people to the lord jesus christ and finally number 4 less of me more of him notice again th- this is the last recorded words of john the baptist that we have in john this is what we go home with on how challenging he must increase but I must decrease. This is the heartbeat of John's daily life. This is what he's lived for his entire life. But it speaks more of just an attitude. It also speaks of actions. It speaks of a life lived. A life lived who understands that God's will is that he is to make much of Christ, and if he's making much of Christ, then God's joy will be overflowing. It reminds me of what William Carey said, and I'll close our time with this. As he was dying, this is what he says to his friend. He says, when I'm gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. For I desire that Christ alone might be glorified, might be magnified. What is the cry of your heart? Is it more of him and less of you? May the Lord be honored as we step into this month of December and as we continue to meet and as we continue to spend time with one another, with family, with our neighbors. May all that we do point to the Lord Jesus Christ and make much of him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us this understanding from John the Baptist and how
1: good you are. And letting us know that we need to make much of you. Lord, we we confess
0: that that is so difficult for us. But we want to do just that. We want to make much of you in all that we do. And how we live each day of our lives, Lord. That you might be honored and you might be glorified. And that more might be able to join in our family. And be representative of the bride of yours, Lord Jesus. That more and more would join as believers believing only in you for salvation. And that our joy would be made complete, full as we serve you and as we make much of you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.